Hello, I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode is about automation and safe automation, even more importantly. And it was recorded, I was on site recording this during SRECon 2022, uh, and I brought up some stories and shared some presentations during this conversation, so you'll get the benefit of, of that thinking. But the group in general is always very focused on how do we make automation safe, and we had a lot of great insights into what does it take to build uh, good IT automation, drawing from spacecraft design, aircraft, uh, aircraft design, and other systems where safety is super important. Um, because the reality is automation is a force multiplier. And if we don't factor in safety uh, when we build it, we could create uh, a lot of uh, harm uh, in system expense as a minimum, but in really doing damage in how infrastructure is built and maintained. Uh, and those have very real implications. So. This is an important episode to pay attention to, and I know you will learn a lot. Really want to, to point out, like, even those that have done it for quite some time, it's still often very painful. And I think sometimes we don't let people see the experience, the pain. And sometimes we get into a scenario where like CIO, CTO is like, automate everything. And like, it's almost like, how hard can it be? And you're like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and you can automate mistakes faster. That's right. And I, and I, I think that you're coming at it from that, that perspective. It's like, what happens if you, if you can't automate it or if you automate it wrong or, you know, it's, it's harder. We saw this a lot. And right? it can be bigger. You can make much bigger mistakes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So we had something. All the scaling better. without limits. Oh God! <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing and crying on that. Have you have you have you uh, hit something like that? Uh, no, no. Uh, for me, it's usually the, the other way around. That I, because I am aware of the the cost issues with all scaling, I, I'm typically more hesitant to all scale. Hmm. Uh, so. Many times I underpower workloads until, which is fine for normal load, but uh, that then you hit the, the peak load and uh, and yeah, it just cascades. And then I was like, okay, time to, uh, now, now it needs the auto scaling because it, it's finally big enough for, for this. Well, you know, here's what's funny because like today's topic is how do you trust automation? And we're sort of there anyway. Um, if uh, and I'm in a conference setting, so sorry about the background noise. But I mean, are are we? This is what we're talking about, right? It's like, how do you know that you've automated the right things? How do you know that the automation is going to do the right things? Trust but verify. But I, I, I mean. How? How do? You, how do you? What do you do? What's your process for for knowing that the automation is going to be trustworthy? So, depending upon the the tool set, and I think unfortunately people don't want to either think about it or deal with it. It's often quote unquote like an independent verifier. So, like an example with something like a puppet or even like a infrastructure as code, utilizing something like that to 
do the initial configuration and then potentially coming back with, I know a number of people use things like a chef's inspect to validate that it actually did what was intended to do. Uh, so you got me, you got a couple of scenarios, whether it's the, the automation has a bug in itself. So like if I'm using a, a, a puppet module or a Terraform module or a Terraform provider, and there's something inherently potentially broken with it, then there's the, hopefully let's catch that. But there's also the, especially I, I saw it more and more with Puppet was when you start to get in the various layers of configuration data that could be applied to a system based upon a number of attributes or factors, then it, it starts to become unwieldy at times for a human being to rationalize that in their head. And so they make a change thinking that it's going to do one thing and then technically Puppet or whatever system did what it was told to do. But now I have no way to almost in essence independently verify it. Yeah, you know, the, 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 in, the unintended consequences of these systems is real from that perspective. So one yeah. of the things we did um, at Placeware before lots of automation existed, but any company that uh, or assignment where you know you're going to have these rapid scaling events, uh, oftentimes those events are scheduled, like a conference or something like that. And so you just make sure that uh, the the first one, uh, you take, take them in stride, but uh, the first one, you make sure you have a full team babysitting the whole system to make sure it does the right thing. So if it doesn't do the right thing, you can actually compensate uh, by humans to, to deal with it. And each time you, you hit another mark, uh, benchmark type thing, it's like, okay, we can handle this much now. The next time you get some system that is larger that you know is going to possibly tweak the scaling, again, you do the babysitting. So you should be watching the first times at least to make sure that everything is, is spinning up correctly, spinning up and spinning down. And yeah, it takes some some time and uh, some scheduling of people, but it's worthwhile because you'll catch things that might not break things. But if you don't fix things, fix it, it might break things in the future. So it gives you a chance to actually eyeball your design in action. We've been adding some like triggers and stuff where like you can set a timer and it'll take an action or you can set a, um, like a webhook. And one of the things that's, that's keeping me up at night is like, you're describing this babysitting, which is, uh, to me, that's fun. It's like, you're watching the system do stuff, but some of the triggers I'm like, I, it's really hard to test when you have a cascading event or something changes and another thing goes and, and I'm, I'm struggling to try and make sure that people can observe that. Uh, that's a good point. The observability becomes more and more critical as the systems get larger and larger. But just knowing that the trigger is possible to get triggered in a specific event that you can babysit, you might not find that the uh, in that event, uh, it's like it's hair raising because if that trigger does the wrong thing, 
you got a mess to clean up, but at least you have the bodies who know how to clean up the mess there exactly when it's finally determined that there is a mess. So at least it's a faster cleanup in some ways. And uh, you, you gain knowledge. You're not going to keep everything from going from going wrong. It's not going to be perfect for anybody, but the more you have eyes to see the, the what's going on in the downflow, pardon my head because it's still fuzzy from sleep, but the more you can see the downward, what happens in the downflow, the cascade, even if it misses something, the initial trigger, at least you can say, okay, so this is a cascade we can at least trigger on, even if we don't trigger all the way back to the top. So uh, I, I need to, uh, you're right. And that's, that's making me think through, there's a logging aspect of like, you know, knowing that something fired and then knowing what caused it to be fired is, is the challenge, right? That's, that's the, the miss. Sometimes the missing piece is like, ah, oh, there's something's, you know, I can clearly see that I'm, I'm taking actions here. But if you don't know the why, it can be really hard to troubleshoot it. And the same thing would be true, like with a webhook. You might have a webhook that's calling into you all the time, and you can't. You don't. That's outside your system that's pushing, pushing to you. And so that can be a tricky scenario, both to test and then to troubleshoot. There's also the the, the other side of this coin, and that for the most part, like most of these cascading failures in, in automated systems. They, they are predictable. The, the data is there. The signs are there telling you that if this continues, this is going to be bad. But frequently, they, they get ignored. Like and I, I, I know back in my days when I'm working at startups, um, I always had to balance capacity with budget. So we would operate at near capacity. Um, because I mean, there was no budget for it otherwise, but it mean it meant that if we we ever hit peak load, uh, we we would we needed to manually react to that. So it, it wasn't that we didn't know it was going to fail; it, it it was that we had the mandate to say like, well, keep it running until it fails. One of the things that came up in the yeah. sorry con was this idea of brownouts that I thought was really interesting where they were like that we had cases where we knew the system couldn't handle a certain load. And so they would shut off features or capabilities to, to degrade capability, but not lose the whole system. And I thought that was a really fascinating component for what you're like, what you're describing is like you get to a peak load and at some point you're hit the, you hit the top and, and that was, you can't give it any more juice. I was so going to say, uh, Rob, that's that's what yeah. that's what SD that's what SD WAN does. So you know, if if there's a degradation on a circuit and it can't you know it can't support the full load, it goes into you know it has a set of rules that say, okay, you know, stop passing this traffic or throttle this traffic or give priority to this traffic. I mean, that's that's how that's literally how SD-WAN is designed to work. Yeah. And, and in many cases, like a lot of the cascade, cascading failures from from automated systems are because 
you're missing the throttling rules. Yeah. Like it, it, it you're not giving yourself the chance to recover. And often those throttling rules, again, it's it's from experience. Uh, like Beth was saying, SDN. Well, that all comes out of the telecom experience of how do you keep the telecom, the carrier up and running when you've got a disaster situation and there's certain things where you need to prioritize certain channels and turn down others, but still be able to reach everybody. And it's a matter of developing the rules. Some systems, you know the rules because they've been around long enough, but sometimes you got to come up with new rules based on the failures that nobody ever expected before now. Actually, one of the things that was fascinating about the MCAS failures on the 737 was that the MCAS system didn't have a governor and so it would it kept trying to fix itself. And so the pilots were fighting the system because it would be like, oops, got to reset, got to reset every every five seconds. And that was one of the, the small changes they made to make the system safe was they're like, look, it only tries once. And if it doesn't, if it if it, it doesn't keep trying. So there's there's an element of what you all are describing where it's like, all right, here's a throttle. Here's a, a, a load shed. And then you also have to have automated systems that don't keep trying to correct a problem or like you have to build that in. Welcome to space design. <laughs> but space design, I mean, one of the things about space design, if I'm right, is like really, really aggressive simulation and scenario planning. And I mean, same with aircraft design. It's you know, they work through a lot of these scenarios. Um, is, I mean, do you just, is that what we have to do with systems automation? Is it the same deal? And how? It depends upon where you want, how many nines you want. And space design, you, you have to have a way of uh, what we called um, safe mode. You have to have a way to fail into safe mode. When everything else goes south, no matter how much has gone south, your system has to still have enough control yeah. to get into a mode where they shut everything down and have just a tiny little bit governing it. So safe mode for the space telescope closes a door over the top of the uh, telescope and then everything goes to sleep. But that door has to close because otherwise you can burn out everything if it mm. points at the sun. And so right. defining the worst case scenario is the first thing you do in space, in space design. I think it's really yeah. industry dependent or yeah, dependent upon the industry. And so when you think about space, you think about healthcare, you think about some of the financial trading things, there's a, the tolerance for some of the issues that we experience um, isn't, isn't as great as some of the others. So if I'm just doing something that it doesn't have as much consequence in terms of if the automation breaks, then there's not necessarily the, the impetus for me to have the same rigor of testing. And I think that's what drives everything from the, even the, especially look at the vendor side. So I'm sure the most vendors, software vendors or hardware vendors in those certain spaces have come to deliver a certain level of, 
I don't want to say quality, but at the end of the day, in some ways, it's quality because they understand the implications of a faulty design or uh, a bad piece of code. Well, there's something else, too, which is that um, you can have. um, Basically, you have to build in a mechanism so that the system will not basically run out of processing power and just kind of stop because it has nowhere to go. Right. Well, like Unix or Linux, if you're root, it has more powers to go into that extra overhead space. And kill if you're by not design. Root, <laughs> right. Yeah. Kill by design. Right. Um, so, you know, generally it's discouraged to run anything in root. Right. <laughs> and I, I think that. Also, part of this is real systems versus software. When you're in the software, a lot of people who are software are always in the software world. And the software world doesn't have the hard limits that right. reality does, that, that hardware systems of various types do. So uh, I think a lot of software designers don't get tested or don't get uh, hard limits demonstrated to them until and unless they are designing in a world of hardware. I mean, I saw something where somewhere said, oh, graceful degradation. It's We don't need to worry. Yeah, that's just a, uh, something that, that folks say it's- now. It's like, no. And the example an old boss gave to me was the automobile. If something fails in your automobile, it can't be catastrophic most times. And so almost everything in your automobile, something fails, it still keeps going. You get a flat tire, it still keeps going until you can safely pull over to the side. Even if the engine blows up, it will continue to, to roll and let you steer until you can pull off to the side of the road. Right. And software, a lot of software has no concept of that kind of design. And so that's where that's what make part of what makes automation so hard, because you are automating to hardware limitations. And most of the software has no concept of hardware limitations. Right. And it and it's made worse by cloud. Right. Because. The, hard, the software will just blithely continue grabbing additional resources. Um, you know, and, and the classic example is if you're under a denial of service attack, you know, it blithely, you know, pulls in more resources. But, you know, first of all, you can get a $100,000 bill from AWS the following month, uh, which is a big surprise. Um Because all you were, you know, it was under a, a denial of service attack. And B, that's not the behavior you actually want to happen. <laughs> no, I'll some, give another another concrete is... example, by the way. My my furnace in November basically, I wouldn't say blew up, it's um it melted down. But you know what? It did not burn my house down in the process. Yay! By design, <laughs> when you have a breach in the in your firing chamber which is what happened 
uh, and water came cascading in, it gracefully shut down. <laughs> Thanks. Same goodness. with the water heater. Like you got the yes, thermocoupler. Water heaters. Yes. <laughs> I mean, these are these are. Well, I mean, they're they're lessons learned. that <laughs> built all this stuff that that had it. Right. That's this is accumulated knowledge on these things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess I would, you know, for this is a strange to me about automation specifically is that it should be easier to test automation because it's automated <laughs> and these infrastructure systems should be more tested. And a lot of times it feels like they, they end up less test, like like it's you, you run it once and then you walk away from it and that's it. Um, so I always said you run it three times. You run it, you write it and run, you run it once to write it. You run it a second time to third, to test it. And you run it a third time to verify it. But the problem is, especially with systems that you and Klaus and Beth and Martez are all dealing with is to do a test requires a hell of a lot of resources and scheduling those resources uh, that are now now no longer available for regular use is extremely difficult, which is why everybody is saying test in production. Well, test in production mostly is true, but there are certain tests where it would be really worthwhile because you know how disastrous a failure would be to test before production, and that's a scheduling issue, and or possibly the whole beta situation where you have a customer who has the, the, the scale of a system that you need and you don't have that scale because you don't run systems on a daily or hourly basis to do that. You have to partner with one of your customers at, that understands there may be a failure to verify that there won't be a failure in the future. And so the resource oh, scheduling is really hard. The, the, the test in production, it's, it, it sounds scarier than it is, but it also has stricter requirements. In, in, in order to be able to test in production, you need to have two things. Um, you need to, need to have the instrumentation to be able to determine whether a workload is healthy or not. Uh, and, and that also includes whether there, there's any, like any performance degradations compared to previous workloads. The second part that you need for to that, uh, to in, in order to do the test in production, is you need to be able to dynamically shift load between two, um, two sets of your workload, your existing non-good one, and the new one that you want to that you want to test, right? Um, so essentially, a, a B with 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 a gradual workload shift, or, or if you want to look at variants like a canary or something like that. Um, and that was the original reason for large system virtual machines was so that you could actually do that. You always had had a system in. Uh, in reserve that you could do the AB testing with and fall back to the original system if the B system didn't perform correctly. 
Yeah. That's the original VM design. And yeah. And, and, and these days, in, in like in order to test it with production, there, there's there's two big barriers based on the two requirements that that that, that I gave. One is that proper instrumentation of the metrics is still not up to par. And that is because telemetry uh, and tracing are still an afterthought. And, and like in, there are some, some companies that, that live it and breathe it, like Netflix, for example. But, but, but in, in a large number of companies, startups and enterprises, th- those are still an afterthought. Like metrics in many times is still an afterthought. Like developers just just worry about getting their workload out, and then, and then they, they they're not interested in, in the instrumentation. The second part, uh, again, with with the with the automation of the of the A/B testing, is a not not so much a lack of tools, but a lack of expertise. The mm-hmm. number of people who know the tools, and the number of people who know how to use the tools is small and yeah. there's not enough knowledge transfer happening to to make the that number catch up with the myth. Yeah, I don't even think it's the tools. It's I think it's the understanding of the problem. Yep. Yeah, the the experience and uh and one of the ways we caught up with that at like Ink to me was we had the QA team actually sitting in on some of these high-end performance experiments where a customer would say, let's see how far we can push the system. And so we scheduled not only the operations folks and the developers, but the QA team, because the developers could fix it if in real time, if necessary, but the QA team were the folks who did a lot of the diagnostics to point the developers at where they needed to be. So we ran a 24-hour experiment where we actually scheduled developers in QA to be available online and watching the system to see what needed to be fixed if something fell over. And so the QA folks had the experience. The developers had some of the experience and the operators uh, had the final call. And um, you, you also pointed out one of the one of the big problems in, in DevOps is that not many not many people are actually practicing DevOps. There's not many companies who are putting the the QA team and the developers uh, at the front line. Yeah, and it it's a different skill set. And yeah, the QA can do to, to can do ops, and the ops can do QA, but each of them have areas where they are better uh, suited and do a better job. And that's why you kind of need those testers because they have a different perspective. And that's why you need those developers because they also have a different perspective from ops. And if you don't have them all together, that's the whole thing about agile. You have all the skill sets together in one team. Oh, that's theoretically theoretical only by the way well yeah that's only theoretical that's what's supposed to happen that's not what happens but no but 
the guys who designed it originally thought, well, the guys who designed it didn't think much of QA, so they really didn't. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have met uh, quite a few of the inventors of Agile programming. And- yeah, there, there is one guy, though, who was really big on testing, a guy named Brian Merrick, and he kept them a little bit more honest. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, but some of the other guys, I mean, they came up with some other cuckoo ideas like the the pair programming, which I th- always thought was just insanity. Oh, no, no, no. You have to talk to the right people who actually managed to get it to work. When it works, it's amazing. Wait, that, and- that, 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 uh- that that pretty much applies to any paradigm. Yeah, yeah I was going to say. But, but Elizabeth Hendrickson got it to work on a regular basis. She knows how to, to, to make I, it I don't think it's something that can be universally supported. No. <laughs> it's just... Well, no. I mean, I'm sure there are people who can get it to work. I mean, you know, I I was told by the Papernax that, you know, that you could get... Um, you could do agile um, building of, uh, you know, and I was like, uh, you still have to build the basement first. Yes. <laughs> yes. And I, I fully agree with that. And there are some really smart teams that have managed to do the basement and out agile, but that's like one in a million at best, yeah. <laughs> at best. But um, yeah. You, so the, the test and production, that Klaus was talking about. It's a mat again, it's a matter of the team and the experience. You can yeah. test in production, but uh from my and the use case. Yeah. yeah. And even way back when Cisco, because of the way Hal Computer and also Slack use their systems, we weren't and and ink to me the the key in all of these systems is that we didn't push it beyond what the specs were, but we pushed it in such a way that we caused it to break because there was a, a corner or an edge that is like, oh, the signals are getting uh, munged because they're coming in at the wrong levels or the, the wrong uh, order. And nobody ever thought that that could happen because there was a system. And in each of those cases, when you're pushing on specific areas, you can break it without actually going beyond the system specs. And so you need to have those customers that tend to do the the, the pushing in those different areas. You have to have a good relationship with them because they're going to find it before the rest of the world finds it and you can fix it before the rest of the world gets to that point. If you got the right customer. So is building this stuff to be trustworthy, strictly a matter of like getting these edge. They're not even edge cases. These scenarios going, you know, their iterative process of putting things through its paces from that perspective. It in in large systems, it's hard to actually iterate on that because it's it's the unknown unknown where everything works with the the knowns and the known unknowns have been compensated for as much as possible. But the unknown unknowns is what throws everything out of kilter. And that's where you have to have the folks that tend to go 
<laughs> into the great unknown and are used to having these issues work with you to, to smooth them out. It's in- interesting. Uh, there was another lesson from the DevOps, from the SRECon <laughs> stuff, which was that a certain degree of risk and, um, you know, uh, experiencing faults and failures actually strengthens the system. One of the one of the people speaking was was saying that you know if you put in too many guardrails and you steer people away from the the risky behaviors, your system's actually going to get more fragile and more brittle because you're not used to dealing with failures or faults or things like that. You don't want to just cover them up. You want to keep the experience of dealing with them. And it sounds like you're saying something similar. It's like you need to be running into these cases and then mitigating them, not just pretending like you're going to all. Well, and I think that's actually part of the problem that AWS runs into when they run into a problem. They've got enough guardrails in place that when they run into a problem, it's a problem that's so deep that they have to spend hours to, to days figuring out how to compensate for the problem that this thing got built in at a really low initial level and they have to back the whole thing out again because of the the coupled nature of their problems. So yeah, if you have lots of guardrails that keep you from experience uh, coupled failures, then you're going to have a problem fixing those coupled failures when you hit them. I, I think we, we need to draw a distinction here between two types of guardrails and on, on, on Yes. And, and I'm I'm going to call I'm, I'm going to label them. I, I don't know if the label is appropriate, but I'm going to call them like uh practical guardrails and false guardrails. Uh, and and th- this goes back to again like discussions that we had in the past about like release cycles, like how, how often do, do you do you post to production, that kind of thing. There, there's the real guardrail. The, the, or the practical guard like guardrail, uh, like for example, in, in automation with with AB with rollouts, where where you 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 shift some of your load, you check if that's fine, and then continue doing that. That that's a practical guardrail. That that's automatable. Um, but then there's the other what kind of what like what I just called false guardrails, like holding back a release because you're not sure it's safe yet. So and, and and those are more psychological uh, kind of guardrails, which make you feel safe, but don't increase the stability of your system. So, in the case of the uh, seven thirty seven, the real guardrails should have been the safety, uh, the safety boundaries, and. The rule is you never relax your safety boundaries because they're they were put in place from experience. That was for the seven thirty seven specifically. The thing that that the, the guardrail they they broke or the the, the, the the core thing they violated was the MCAS system wasn't flagged as a critical system. It was flagged as an important system. Like there's a no. distinction, yeah. and so all you know when the what what. They didn't give it the scrutiny because they didn't expect it to have the failure scenarios that they that that it did, and so 
they walked into a place where what should have had additional scrutiny and checks and validation was just overlooked because it was considered a secondary system, not a primary system. But the problem with that is their definition of secondary system was wrong because if it controls the plane and you can't turn it off, well, that it's a primary system. That well, that and then it didn't have the redundancy, the sensor redundancy it needed. It didn't have some. There's there were things that that it would have and, had that it does now. Yes. That um, that, that but are good. All of those, yeah. all of those things, never would have passed scrutiny if they had had senior aerospace engineers working on it. And the biggest issue with Boeing was they transferred the design to India without transferring the senior engineers. They laid off all the senior engineers. There there was definitely a a change in the engineering philosophy. There's another interesting component here, though, which was that the airlines who were using that, who who were buying the new plane, insisted that they wouldn't have to recertify their pilots on the new plane. And so a part of the oh, issue yeah, yeah. was... That was one of the ways, that was one of their selling points, specifically. Right, right, and they had to, because otherwise the companies would have switched to the Airbus. And so they had to pretend like it was the same plane aerodynamically, even when they changed the aerodynamics of the plane. And so this idea that the, that you could sort of skate past the human factors on this and not retrain people... Um, was a big part of it. And, and it's just fascinating. The number of different factors they had in this and contributing, you know, contributing to it were, were a big deal. And, and again, a lot of it goes back to the whole change of philosophy of the, the company where instead of having engineers in control, they had bean counters in control who made decisions without enough knowledge. Yeah. Uh, because they also the plane the plane should have required recertification itself the design, but they managed to convince the inspectors that no it was the same. Well, plane. that was another failure, which is that the it, the FAA was too much in the pocket of yep. the uh, of the um, manufacturers of Boeing and 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 uh, Lockheed. And so they basically were relying on the accuracy of what the what Boeing was saying to them. Yep. And yeah, I'm sorry, you get a 90% airframe change. It should require recertification. Yes. Yes. Which is ultimately <laughs> what they ended up doing. But but it ended up costing them a lot of money. And by the way, this is not the first or will it be the last time? that these dumb things happen, right? Um, yeah. Let me remind you about the O-rings on, you know, on several uh, of our space uh, missions. That particular problem happened twice. <laughs> yeah, the first time wasn't a catastrophic failure. The second time it was. Yep. And actually, I think it ha- happened more than twice. Yes. But this, the one time where it almost was a catastrophic failure, they still ignored it. Right. That was but, Apollo 13 was was that was what caused the problems. Yeah. And, and it was also a, a fundamental 
uh, misunderstanding of the the um, I forgot the technical term that, that was used for ordering, like the the the, the failure. Of, well, it's the physics of the materials. <laughs> well, they, they, they didn't understand that that like you you don't uh, you you don't you, you don't design the product for for hundred percent failure resiliency. You need to do it for like two hundred percent. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, like it was it was a misunderstanding about the math of, of, of that value. Right. And that's funny because um when I was in college, I took a class in uh, I forget what it was called, but it was basically unusual structural engineering. So structural of engineering of designing for like um domes, for example, and uh stadium roofs and other kinds of unusual structures. And um, absolutely, that was one of the things we were taught is like, just add 300% to any number that you come up with when you're designing these things. And and then business uh, bitches that it's over-designed uh, and, oh, yeah, that, that guy over-designed everything. Get so, let somebody design it so that we don't have as much materials or time in it. But, yeah, and that's part yeah. of the issue, the tension between business and engineers who know that it needs to be over-designed to survive the 100% design point. And that's the exact dilemma ops gets, and not, not just ops, but also security. Yep. Like we, we get that in, in IT all the time. It, mm -hmm. It's why we had failure scenarios, like um, uh, uh, what's this called? Uh, the, the credit company. Um, Equifax. Equifax, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like it, 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 someone made a decision saying, like, this risk is acceptable. Right. Yeah. Well, so there's there's a fallacy in risks, and that's what you know, in the in the default, you know, in 2008, the 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 recession, the Great Recession was caused by so in risk analysis, I mean there's lots of people who do risk analysis. There um where risk analysis is really hard for very catastrophic events that happen very rarely. It's terrible yeah. at predicting them and handling them. And that's what happened with the 2008 default. Um, we're, we're living through it with COVID. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, uh. Yeah. Or, yeah, but those are those were anticipatable things. I mean, part of what I'm I'm listening back on this is there's there is definitely the design aspect of it, but I think there's also the ignoring the warning signs or not investigating the faults. Because, uh, well, because and like a lot the, of a lot of that is the business side of things where automate everything, but uh we only have a budget of so much so testing and validating gets put to the side because the we don't want to spend that much money we just want to spend this much money or or in many cases it's it's not even that testing and validating gets put aside it's that the results get ignored like the the Ford Explorer rollover yeah. issue yeah like with with, with with the tires they they knew that this was going to happen right and they but, but they decided they, to ignore it because it was it made them more money to to sell the vehicles 
and then pay the fines later. Right, right. There was a couple, I can't, can't remember who it was, Volkswagen, I think, had had some flaw. And they, they literally said, okay, for every person who gets killed, and they knew that people were going to get killed. No, that was Ford again. Was that Ford? Because I that thought was... Volkswagen had one too, but, but it might so, have definitely. Yeah. But the point is, is that these are bean counters are saying, okay, it's going to cost us X hundreds of millions to fix this problem. And the likelihood is we'll kill, you know, 20 people will get killed. So you know what? It's cheaper just to pay them off. And, and I think that's why if you look at Netflix, their leadership is engineering. They're not bean counters. And one of the things I've noticed in my career of hitting lots of different companies, NEC's leadership was engineering, whereas Fujitsu's went back eventually and became bean counters. And the difference in just the culture within the company, because of that, and you could see it in your first week working there. And you didn't know what it was until you met the C-suite. And then you're going, oh, okay. Now I'm seeing this pattern of how things work versus who's at the head. And there are a lot of bean counters and salesmen at the head of large companies. Yeah. That's that's pretty typical. Although, yeah. interestingly, telcos don't tend to have bean counters. And telcos mm. don't tend to have anywhere near, well, we don't hear of as many failures because there aren't as many catastrophic failures, both because they've absorbed the experience and knowledge over the years. Although AT&T is kind of, sort of an outlier there it is because guess who but the if you look at at&t's heads background he's a bean counter i exactly you could you could almost predict the performance of the company based on uh whether it's an engineering company with a bean counter head or an engineering company with an engineer head and and verizon is the current head is is an engineer the previous head was an operations guy. He came out of the, you know, he was, he started as a pole climber. <laughs> so he was acutely <laughs> aware of, of what it is involved in running those systems. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, that explains a lot. And Deutsche Telekom is the same way. Yeah. And so literally, I think, Part of the risk is who's controlling the purse strings. And, and this gets exacerbated if the if a company is uh, has public offerings. Yep. So, so Rob, we have totally gone like in a really different direction. <laughs> I, I I think this is actually true to what the topic is, because. Part of what we're trying to do is figure out how to build a trustworthy system. And if what we're saying is that, you know, what I'm what I'm hearing in summary is a trustworthy system requires testing scenarios, spare capacity. It requires some time. There's an element that uh, Martez and I were going back and forth of where it takes bringing in lessons from the field and applying lessons and continuing to improve something and not declaring it good enough. 
And what we're what we're saying very strongly on the other side is there's a, a lot of economic incentives away from that 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 say, you know, once you've demonstrated that it works, you know, we can absorb the risk of a system failure by with fi- with financing. And, and, and so, so yeah. part of it is the the whole value versus uh uh monetary uh there is a value beyond monetary there is a quality versus a quantity a a non-metric uh aspect to risk that often gets ignored there's also the the silver line and that is that if you introduce automation you remove the cap the keep the capacity of someone deciding to ignore the signals like unless you configure the automation to ignore the signals like but 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 by default your your automation will will say hey i i got the the signal here saying that i need to scale up or things will will or, or my system will, will crash and it will go and do it. Okay, I want to point out one thing right now, and that is we're on the verge of finding out how well risk has been uh, determined and thought about in Ukraine with both uh, Chernobyl and the other nuclear plant. Chernobyl is old technology and has been shut down, except it's still running. And everybody who operates a thing has been run into the ground and has no bandwidth and has been- And that was being bombed. (laughs) Yep. And so that's old technology with a little bit of overlay. And then the the newer technology is at the plant that the Russians took over that was operating and had mostly been shut down before they came in. In both instances, the operators, they're not allowing the operators to swap in and out. So they're running the same, using the same operators who were just a single shift. They're running them continuously 24 hours a day. And we're about to see how that risk plays out, I think, because there's no bandwidth left in the people. So it's all the systems Mm. that. That and then, and then we can we can refer to Three Mile Island for what happens when you when you get operator fatigue. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I'm not yes. familiar with that. With that, I, I'm familiar with Three Mile I mean, Island, I mean, but not the operator fatigue part. Yeah, that was the cause of the problem. Like Klaus said, um, ignoring the signals and and keeping it running. Uh, even with the the signals coming in because they were so tired. It's like, well, we have to keep, yeah, it's like bad judgment because they're too tired and missing the fact that these signals that they were supposed to do something about, they didn't because they're just too tired. There was was alarm fatigue too. Yeah, alarm fatigue was a big one. Yeah, I'm putting in the link, a link in the uh, chat about Three Mile Island. Really, really interesting. I I remember studying this this one in school because it was super interesting. So, Beth, what was your 
what was your actual uh, degree in? It's obviously not software. My undergraduate degree is in architecture. Ah, excellent. Okay, that explains a lot of what some of what we've been getting here today. Yeah. So I am very familiar with failure because when you design buildings, you have to take that into consideration. I'd I'd also like to point out that in Great Britain, at least 20, 30 years ago, the people who designed bridges were not architects, were not civil engineers. The people who designed bridges were aeronautical engineers. That's um, who, that actually makes sense. Yep, that it does. Yeah. Low low speed aeronautical engineers are who were the guys that were designing bridges in Great Britain. I know um, that because I know one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. Well, civil engineers should know about that because, um, and skyscrapers also. I mean, you know, you have to take into consideration air movement, wind movement, and of course, earthquakes. <laughs> and, uh, and material behavior. And material behavior, yeah. I mean, that those are considerations. Um, that, But it makes sense that... Um, um, and let me right, give this you is... a story about Galloping Gertie. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and then and then we do need to wrap up. But uh, one more story. This one has the video. Uh, this is, so the Comaneros Bridge also had the same problem. Oh, yes. Uh, yes. So that one's me... famous. Yeah. No, it's... Yeah. there's actually a recent picture you know weather channel shows all these little videos there's recent picture of a bridge failure somewhere in the u.s it was one of these oh in minneapolis with the the arches yeah tubular arches that the wind took and just twisted the arches around Mm. it's like whoa i just posted that there was a video uh, it was a film the engineer, when they built the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, the engineer knew there was a problem and they ignored him. So he and he it had to do with wind. Because what would happen is if the wind was a steady wind at a certain mile per hour would would cause a resonant frequency on that bridge. And it literally tore the bridge apart. Yep. And um, he he would. He knew this was going to happen and he warned them and they ignored it. So he would go out to the bridge. This happened in the the 1930s. He would go out to the bridge on days that that particular wind condition happened and he'd record it. And that's why we have the recording of the bridge failing. And I'd like to point out the Science Museum in St. Louis has a whole section on engineering and failures. And the Tacoma Narrows video is there. Yep. And the engineering journal on the building of the bridge across the Mississippi, talking about uh, the bends and how they ended up discovering the bends in uh, by building this bridge. And so the whole en- uh, engineering notebook, copies of it with the areas talking about the sickness that these guys were getting be- when they were going down and spending a lot of time digging the uh, 
the footings. And there's a third one too, but they have fascinating hard engineering problems, failures uh, documented in the science museum there. It's really cool. So, and um, I think, I think that, I mean, getting kind of circling back, because I know we're at the end, um, I think we can apply these lessons in physical science um, to software design as well. You know, obviously, you don't have materials in in the equation, but you certainly have, um, you know, resource constraints and, um, you know, single single points of failure that you need to address. And humans. <laughs> and humans, yeah. You also, you also have to budget the time and resources to, to understand and code for these processes. If if the it's not budgeted, it ain't going in there. All right. This was a fast conversation. I, I like where it went a lot. So Thank you all for the conversation. Uh, I'm keep learning and learning. So it's all good. Yeah. And I'll see you tomorrow, Rob, in some I, form. I, I was hoping that's, wait, it's uh, Thursday, right? Thursday, right? Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> Thursday's much better for me. I'll talk yeah. to you then. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Wow. It's amazing to me how much experience we have together in these discussions. And as much as I feel comfortable building automation, I know that reviewing these lessons over and over again and hearing the stories and sharing tips and tricks to make me and you better at doing these designs and systems is critical because systems thinking is not natural to us. We have to be reminded, we have to keep growing and returning to the well, which is why I enjoy coming to these sessions and I hope you will bring your voice. Come in and, and join us as part of the roundtable at the 2030.cloud. I'm looking forward to hearing your opinion and you sharing your knowledge. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know, laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.